0: Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale, episode twenty with me Eason. And me Bex. And today, continuing our theme of episodes which kind of encapsulate writing, editing, publishing, all these different things that might be of interest to those taking part in NanoRimo 2017. Our special guest is Chris Beckett, an award winning science fiction author.
1: Yeah, so Chris is an awful Dark Eden won the 2013 Clark Award. And his previous short story collection, The Turing Test, won the prestigious Edge Hill Prize.
0: Yeah, and we spoke to Chris in advance of the publication of his new novel, America City, and it was great to chat to him about his thoughts on writing, his inspirations, his advice for new writers, and also some really interesting uh, thoughts about his back catalogue as well.
1: So, hope you enjoy. delighted to be joined this time by science fiction author Chris Beckett. Hi Chris.
2: Hello, hi, nice to be here.
1: You're probably best known for the Eden trilogy uh, which came out over the last few years but you've been writing science fiction since the 1990s. Um, Why did science fiction in particular sort of attract you as a medium and and particularly some of the short stories that you wrote in the early years, why did short science fiction draw you in?
2: Yeah, that's interesting because I, unlike some uh, writers, I didn't sort of, you know, when I, when I when I was younger, I had the idea of you know wanting to be a writer. I didn't particularly have the idea I wanted to be a science fiction writer, and I tried to write other kinds of stories. But you know, you know, you know, you know, we talk about a writer finding their voice, kind of thing. And, and what happened to me was that my voice included science fictional elements. And I think it's, I think science fiction is, um, it, it the tools of science fiction just happen to suit the kind of things I want to write about, really, for some reason, and. Uh, and once I found that out, then I sort of took off, really, or in my own mind, I did anyway.
1: <laughs> and you spent many years writing short fiction before your first yes. novel. Um, was that because short fiction, in particular, um, was a, a sort of useful tool for exploring different things, or were you sort of find, like you say, finding your voice as a writer, or why in particular?
2: Well, um, I think uh, it was a number of different reasons. I, mean, I did write my first novel when I was about 19 I mean it's in the attic somewhere you know so I have tried to write longer things before Um, that wasn't science fiction actually interestingly but um, um, I suppose it's a combination of things it was like um, not um, having as much time as I've since had to, to write I suppose that was one reason and just the you know that that's what came i didn't you know i didn't really have it in my i didn't really have a, a whole novel in my head at that point you know and I, but i did have you know um, on a fairly regular basis ideas that somehow or other managed to gel into stories you know and then uh, i think i embarked on my first novel the holy machine i think I, it was 1994 i had my i wrote the first draft of it I took some time out of work actually i'm paid leave from my job to write the first draft of it so that wasn't that far into me having started to publish short stories that I actually attempted a novel, although the journey between that first draft and it, you know, appearing in print was a was a longish one. Um, uh, so uh, wasn't that long, but yes, I, I think the short stories just suited me to start with.
1: Were you a reader of short science fiction before, in some of the um, outlets that exist, like in and Asimov's?
2: Um, I didn't even know about Interzone Asimovs until I started writing, um, and then I found out about it because I wanted to find somewhere to sell them, and um, it was it was always Interzone to start with. I never it was quite some time before I branched out into Asimovs but um, and uh, I've got to say Interzone. To some extent Interzone the existence of Interzone was what took me down that channel because I could send them stories. They they to start with I got rejection letters, but they were very good rejection letters, almost like a correspondence course, you know, <laughs> feedback on what I was doing. And uh, um, and then eventually I decided to send it to so I hadn't I had you know, I had a place to go with my stories and that you know, that inevitably shapes the kind of stories you write to some extent. Um I think science fiction uh, writers are lucky in the sense that there is still even now, but certainly then, a market for short stories, which I think is quite difficult for people who write um, non-genre fiction.
1: Yeah, because there aren't that many avenues left for non-sci-fi, fantasy short fiction to get out there. But the um, magazines that do exist, um, like insane Asmos, how important is that in terms of? bringing through new voices in those genres and and giving them a foothold and getting some of their work out there before they've established with a novel?
2: Well, I mean, I, I suppose I can only speak for myself. I mean, I, I do wonder, I seriously wonder, whether if there had been nothing like Interzone or any or any equivalent to Interzone, I would have given up at some point and just thought, I, you know, what's the point? I'm writing stuff and I can't find anything to do with it. Would I, would I have carried on? Would I have written a novel? Would I have actually got a novel... Uh, published. I, d- I just don't know. It seems to me that it's, it's, you do need the um, intermediate steps between not publishing anything at all and publishing a novel commercially, you know. there's the, Most people need some intermediate steps, you know. Um, it's like if you're a piano player, you, you want to have something in between just playing the piano in your living room and performing in the Albert Hall, you know?
1: <laughs> you know. You need something in between. So The Holy Machine, which was your first novel, came out in 2004... Yes. So that ten years between the first draft that you wrote yes. and the publication, was that a lot of rewriting? Did it change substantially over the years? Well,
2: I wrote the the, the first draft of it in nineteen ninety four, and it, it I suppose I in my heart I knew it didn't quite work at that point, and I I, I sat on it for a while and I actually rewrote it in ninety seven. So the so the, pretty much in its current form, it was written in ninety seven. I had a I, I couldn't find a mainstream publisher for it at the time uh, I uh, I did eventually have a small press that was going to publish it called Big Engine run by Ben Jeeps but that um, that went out of business and then I was eventually published by an American print-on-demand publisher called Wildside um, but uh, uh, it's more recently come out in 2010, uh, you know, published by Corvus a more kind of commercial publisher but um, so, yes yeah, long quite to long journey to, to kind of, for that to see the light of day, and I don't think the Wild Side edition, although it had a beautiful cover, I don't think it sold very many copies.
1: So then in 2008, um, the Turing Test came out, which was a short story collection. Yes. Was that a collection of stories that had been out in in these science fiction magazines over yes. the years? Yes,
2: yes. All the stories in the Turing Test, had either appeared in um, uh, Interzone or in Asimov's, which... Um, by the way, Asimov has also been very supportive to me, and you know, so I'm grateful to them as well. But they, they, they were sort of that was a bit further on. Suddenly, occurred to me to start saying to Asimov um, uh, So they'd all appeared, and they'd all appeared over a period of well, a better part of two decades over the previous previous time. So that, that and it was, I'm not a very, pro, I wasn't a very prolific short story writer. I mean, I think there was one year I, I published four short stories, but usually it was a two a year, you know. Um, and it was most of the stories I'd published up to that point. I left out a group of stories which had, I'd kind of subsumed into a novel and I didn't include them in there. Um, but apart from that, it was most of the stories I'd published. Yeah, that's right.
1: And how did it end up being nominated for and ultimately winning the Edge Hill Prize? Oh,
2: well, that was a huge break for me. In that, yeah, and someone, someone else I'm very grateful for. There's a lot of people I have cause to be grateful for, actually. But the Turing Test was published by a knowledge based. Um, small press um called elastic press uh which is basically a chap called andrew hook um who's a very prolific writer on his own right by the way um and uh he had the he had the idea of submitting it for the edgehill prize I, I i barely realized he'd done so i think he mentioned it to me and then he contacted me to say did i realize it was um it was on the shortlist?" Sure list you know so that uh it was pretty exciting yeah but it was that was down to him it didn't occur it wasn't my idea to submit it um and uh that proved to be a very important step for me
1: and it was the only i suppose you, what you would call genre fiction collection on the short list of was traditionally a very kind of literary fiction focused prize
2: yeah it was um and it some of the other people on the sh- on the shortlist were pretty heavyweight characters like um, Ali Smith and Anne Enright, you know, so that, uh, you know, it was it was like, yeah, wow, you know, these people on the same shortlist as me. And, uh, yeah, and when I actually won the prize, it was pretty dazzling for me, you know. Uh, I think that's quite a good word because I did actually feel dazzled. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, like you look into a room in a very bright light, whoa, you know. Yeah. Mm.
1: So then shortly after that, you had uh, March, which came out in 2009. And then there's been a new edition of that released recently yeah and yeah. um, why did you want to go back and, and make changes to the story?
2: Well two things about it one is uh, the original marcher was published um, by cosmos books, which is a kind of offshoot of wildside I think or it was a, a company set up by someone who had been part of wildside um, and it was it was a pretty low budget edition There wasn't much in the way of editorial or proofreading input so it was a i wasn't happy with it from the point of presentational point of view uh i i you know i thought it was basically quite a good book and um i just wanted it to be out there you know and that's why uh, i approached um um press about doing another new edition of it but then i thought if i'm going to produce a new edition i'm going to actually rework it as well so i reworked it changed the ending completely actually and um yeah i just kind of reworked the whole thing um basically try i mean what i've learned you know now working with kind of more you know if you like commercial publishers um that the editorial input is really quite important and if you don't have editorial input you don't have anyone saying you know that bit is really boring or that bit's too long or that you need to explain that more or order then you just don't get such a good book it's not it's not just about one person so in the absence of that i thought it was good to kind of you know and i did have editorial input from in Waits, of course who run Newcom Press. and so uh, so yeah i just wanted to make it a what I thought was basically a good book a better book that was my thinking yeah
1: and then the Eden Trilogy where did the initial idea for that world come from
2: okay yeah Um, well I published a a short story um, I think it was 92 if I remember correctly which is quite early in my story writing career perhaps the fourth short story I ever published um, which is called The Circle of Stones and that that story which uh, formed the the kernel of Dark Eden if you've read Dark Eden you will know where the circles, why the circle of stones is significant um, that that was the, the germ of the idea and obviously you can't explain exactly where the everything how it all bubbled into my mind but um, one thing I've always thought was probably something to do think about Dark Eden the planet Eden is a sunless planet or the, any light that exists on the planet comes from bioluminescence and um, and any heat comes from geothermal heat, uh, which the, the life forms on the planet are able to transfer to the surface. But, um, um, so basically it's a planet that's, that's lit by its own trees, and I, 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 I'm fairly certain I know where that idea came from. Back in the day, I used to have one of those old Amstrad computers with green letters on a black screen, and if you think about it, that inverts a page of writing in much the same way as Eden inverts the ordinary world, in the sense that the the letters are the bright thing and the background is dark, whereas in, on a page of writing, it's the other way around. And I'm fairly certain that it was just staring at that screen that, that <laughs> um, gave me the idea of um, a luminous forest, and that's that's what first part of the idea. Um, but the, the content of the story came from sort of things in, things I was thinking about my my own personal life at the time but it was uh, yeah it was about a kind of the story itself was about a kind of a a terrible act of transgression that 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 kind of destroyed a community but possibly had creative consequences and that was the uh, that was the kind of kernel of that idea and of course that did become the kernel of dark eden what is it to to the eyes of most people a a terrible and, and very selfish act of transgression carried out by one character and the consequences of that
1: and then over the following two books, those consequences effectively play out over generations. Mm. Did you have those second and third books in mind when you were writing Dark Eden?
2: Well, when I first wrote the novel Dark Eden by the way, there was another short story called Dark Eden as well, which which was the backstory to, to the to the book. That's about how people first came to the So that was two short stories that were the precursors to the book. Just to Complete the history, but yeah, um, I didn't. When I wrote the novel Dark Eden, I imagined it being a standalone book. But that said, I did. I had had an no idea, and I'd even written a short story which I abandoned, which includes some of the events in the second book, Mother of Eden. So I had, I had begun to think about um, uh, the sequel before I even written the novel. You know, but I, when I wrote it, I thought, you know, and it does work as a standalone book, Dark Eden. It was that was my original plan. My, my publishers suggested I think about sequels and I thought yeah I, I will and so I, I used that um, I used some of the ideas for, for the second book Mother of Eden so no the, the sequels weren't weren't in my mind as I wrote the novel really the germ was there but they weren't really plan at that point
1: how big an influence in, in sort of getting the second and third ones out there was the first book Dark Eden winning the Clark Award in 2013
2: um I'm trying to think of the time sequence. I think I'd already um, embarked on the sequel before the Clark Award. I'm not absolutely sure, and I'd have to I'd have to look back. I can't remember. So, but I'm sure winning the Clark Award wouldn't have, wouldn't have wouldn't have been a discouraging thing to carry <laughs> on with this world. Let's put it that way, you know. But um, I was quite once I got the idea into my head. I was quite taken with the idea because in in Dark Eden, we're talking about a small community descended from just two astronauts about 160 years after the two astronauts um, arrived on the planet Eden and a lot of the book is about how they relate to that story of how they got there and how they, they, they cope with the, the fact that they are essentially exiles from Earth and how they deal with that in terms of their their belief system and the stories they tell and the, you know the way they give their lives meaning you know that was, it's all about that and, and the sort of rather garbled version of their origin story that, that, that they, they use. And so once I, the idea entered my head of um, writing sequel, sequels to the book, I thought it'd be fun to jump forward again to another time where the events in Dark Eden were now the story. You know, the, 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 the backstory was now the, the catastrophic rift in the community that took place in Dark Eden. But of course it was a rift, so there were two separate communities and each of them had their own uh, version of that story, radically different version which they'd developed. So Father of Eden was set among the, the, the so-called John folk, the people who'd followed the, the transgressor John, and so they had a certain take on those events, and the Daughter of Eden was set among the David folk, the, if you like, the, the, the conservative faction in Dark Eden, and they had their own separate take. And I, the, so I thought that'd be fun to... The original novel would become the mythology of the other two novels, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, that's a, that's, a, that's probably slightly different from the normal format of a trilogy. In the second, in the, the second, two are quite close in time, um, but the first one is some way back. Yeah.
1: So, as well as the Eden trilogy, you also released another short story collection in two thousand and thirteen. Yes, mm.
2: yes uh, that story collection was called The Peacock Cloak, and it's published by Newcom Press. Um, again, it was a collection of previously published stories that appeared in. Various outlets. Um, um, it differed from the first collection in the stories that have been written over a more concentrated period of time. I think and that gives it a different feel. The first one had been written over, as we said, nearly be- better part of, um, well, a decade and a half. Anyway, you know, but this, the second was over over a matter of years. Um, but yeah.
1: So while you were writing the novels, you were also still working on short stories yes. throughout that time.
2: Yes, I was. Yeah, although my short story writing. It's taking a different turn more recently but yes at the time I was continuing to write those short stories yeah yeah
1: and is is that just because you've got particular ideas that suddenly crop up and you want to do something with them or was it just to sort of keep your hand into getting things out there and published while you're working on a novel or
2: well what I think I've changed slightly in in, in some ways but at the time back, back in the day when I started writing short stories um I, w- I wouldn't have made it. Wouldn't have worked for me to say to myself, "I really ought to write a story." I, I, either I've got one or I haven't got one. And if, I, if it's there, I write it. if I haven't got it. I wouldn't write it. That's very much how I felt. So as I said earlier on, I would have liked to write ten stories a year, but usually it'll be two or three. And if I couldn't, you know, I found I couldn't force it. You know, I'd just come. There'd be an idea proper into my mind. It might be something like the green um, writing on the screen would would make me think oh, that's an idea of a story, and then. Perhaps another idea would pop in my mind. You know, I'd, I'd have an idea about um, I don't know someone making a transgressive act, and then might think, oh yes, someone's doing a circle of stones that you know that somehow your one isn't allowed to touch or something. You know that that would that would somehow gel, and, and then the story would appear. It's like a kind of almost a um, um, some kind of alchemy that would happen that was somewhat out of my control. So, uh, so I guess what happened from I just kept on that thing kept on happening it kept on generating stories I, I don't I don't seem to generate stories in quite that way any longer short stories any longer perhaps because I've become more immersed in novel writing or possibly I've just that particular way of writing stories has one its course i mean, I've cover a couple of stories recently which have been commissioned which in the old days I would have found very difficult but I think now I find it almost easier to to be commissioned to write a story um, to, 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 to fit a certain context or a certain um, theme or something and and uh, I've written a couple of stories. That I'm very pleased that, that, uh, with that have fallen into that pattern. But I think, in the, in, you know, if you'd asked me in the middle '90s, "Look, would you write a story on this subject?" I would have found that very difficult.
1: Mm. So, have those have been for particularly themed anthologies.
2: No, one of the ones I'm thinking about, I've written. I think I've written three themed ones this year. Um, two of them were for themed anthologies. Yeah, um, one of them, the, the only theme was it had to have a set number of words, which is a bit odd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other one was a uh, um, an uh, anthology th- th- in which the uh, they were both these were both these two I'm talking about were both for Newcom, and the other one was Newcom Press was uh, a collection of alien fairy tales and uh, fairy tales told by aliens. Which when I first thought the idea, I thought, I I don't think I'm going to come up with anything. Like that. And then I thought, yes, I've got a really good idea for that, and I'm I'm dead <laughs> chuffed with the one I wrote. That uh, then the third one um, was a commission from Audible because um, my my stories apparently sell quite well on as audio. Um, my my, book, my books do rather, and um, and it was a commission, you know, straight to audible, straight to audio story, almost a novella. Really. It's about um, eleven thousand words long, so it's more. That is really a novella, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. never quite know when one one begins and the other ends. And and that was on the theme of arrival, and again, that was that was it. The theme of arrival. I had to think of a story and uh, and I was sort of my slight feeling of panic how am I going to come up with a story of arrival don't panic Chris just think just, it's just a different way of kind of process and it's just um, I'm finding that interesting now I'm quite, quite enjoying that challenge of um, working with a, within a, some kind of constraint two constraints really one is a topic and one is a time one is a deadline which, yeah. is, which is different from how I used to do it
1: so it, does it feel different writing to a deadline than just having an idea that might percolate for years before
2: yeah it does feel different because you're right that some of those old stories Uh, did percolate for years you know in some cases you know and um and also my novels did as well you know that you know as i say that the um the uh short story the circle of stones i came out if i'm right in 1992 and the the novel dark eden came out in 2012 meaning that there was actually a 20 year percolation between the two incredibly (laughs) you know um so that's quite a long time for an idea to percolate through your head and 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 or marinate is that the better word I don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, so now and it's the same with the novels of course I I don't have that luxury of letting things marinate for 20 years I'm I'm, you know I've got a you know I've signed a contract to deliver a novel I've got a year to write it or something you know and um, that's a different kind of discipline and I think uh, yeah I've changed it's changed me as a writer and um, I'm still adjusting to it Mm. Mm.
1: so does it does it change how you feel about the act of writing itself
2: Yes, I, I think I was still in. I'm still, still, you know, it's interesting talking to you about this because I think I was still in a sort of state of transition between a writer that just wrote when when the spirit, you know, like a kind of, like some kind of Quaker meeting, you know, when what they call it, the spirit comes on you or something like that, you know, <laughs> and uh, a writer that just sits down and writes, you know, and um, and um, and yeah, it's, it's it is it is. I do feel differently about it, and um, I find. What I'm finding now is that um, with my novels, I think the novels I haven't. I mean, I think Daughter of Eden is possibly my favourite novel in many respects, my my third Eden novel. But you know, that's an example of a novel I had a definite short time scale to write it, and I just had to butt knuckle in to do it. And I, you know, I hated writing it for the first few months. You know, I just thought that Ugh, I can't make this come alive. Ah. And then eventually, just by going over it and battering away at it, you know, like battering a head on a brick wall. Eventually, I am. Um, dented the wall and got through it you know um but it's a very different kind of process you know uh from the the, the slow marination approach
1: so you've got a new novel coming out yeah very soon actually in the next couple of weeks called america city how long has that been developing for
2: um well that 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 um yeah by the way it's coming november the 2nd so it's very soon um uh that uh I think uh, that the first idea for that I had a couple of years ago, actually, but I didn't really sit down and start writing it till, you know, um, mm. no more than a year before, no more than a year ago. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so it's taken me about a year to, from mm. starting to write it to publication. I think I did have a short stab at it a couple of years ago and then put it aside and wrote Daughter of Eden and then I came back to it. So mm. even though I'm cheating a bit and letting a bit of marination take place, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad idea. Say you're going to write one novel, then set it aside and write another one. Then you get the you still get the marination space, you know, because it was going to be. I was going to write um, Mother Eden, and I was going to write a different novel, and then I was going to write the Daughter Eden, but I did it the other way around eventually. Yeah.
1: Mm. So, what's America City about?
2: So, America City is very different from Eden novels, and um, and in some ways more of a risky project from from. <laughs> From my point of view In the sense that even novels Were, were sort of Took place in a world Of my own invention um, And Nobody But me, me Knows what it's like there So I can More or less Get away with anything You know It's still Of course not completely Because it still has to be Coherent People still have to Find it convincing As a world um, You know It doesn't I don't think it matters If it's completely Scientifically viable But you know At some surface level It has to feel Feel like it works, you know. Um, uh, But apart from that, it was my. Well, the the America City, as the title suggests, is mainly set in America. Um, Some action takes place in Canada, but it's mainly in America. Um, And that's a real place, obviously. Um, And it's mainly about American politics, which is a real thing. Um, And I don't know, I've only ever spent a week in America in my life, so that I don't know America particularly well, and none of it. the entire time I spent in America was spent um, in New York and Boston points in between and this almost all takes place in other parts of the country mainly in the west coast uh, northwest of America so you know I'm writing about a place that exists but I don't know so that's quite challenging um Oh, sorry, I was trying to tell you why it was challenging and you asked me to tell you what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me uh, go back to what it was about. So the, the the premise of this is that we're talking about a 100 years' time. I, I don't specify a date. Um, climate change um, has got to a point where um, uh, the southern parts of America, I don't just mean what we call the south, but the whole southern half of the country in, in various ways, is afflicted by various um, Climatic challenges, that there's a lot of drought in the southwest, uh, southwest um, desert states in California, to the point where some communities aren't really viable because it's too expensive to provide them with water, and so certainly quite a lot of farms are no longer viable. So you have a kind of a bit like the um, the Okies in the in the 1920s. You have a kind of exodus of people from those areas, uh, like the Okies from the Dust Bowl in the 20s. Um, and then in the, the east coast of America, particularly the southeast, but quite a long way up the east coast, you have very um, high instance of hurricanes, uh, large hurricanes, which are, make life very difficult. So you also have an exodus from those parts of the country. So what you have is an America that has an internal refugee problem. So it's like the planet Earth is now, but it's all it's in within, within America. In other words, there are there are people who have had to abandon their homes because the homes have ceased to have any value. They can't sell them. You know, no one's going to buy a home that in the place where there's no water supply you know, or a farm. So people who've lost everything trying to, moving into the northern part of the country and trying to um, uh, find a niche for themselves there. And the people in, uh,
1: pretty
2: much what happens on a global scale now, happening within America, where the people in the northern part the, uh, are, are, are reluctant to receive these people. They're getting increasingly hostile towards them and finding reasons why it's all their own fault and all the other things that we do when we don't want to help people you know we persuade ourselves that it's their fault so that's the that's the political context and there's even the beginnings of a movement in the northern part of America which is about saying the states could have should have frontiers and they should be able to exclude people from other states which would of course be the end of the United States as, a, as, a, as we know it you know um, and the the main protagonist of my novel is um, a British born she lives in America, she's British born she's a, she's a publicist by profession she she, um, she advises big corporations and so on with their PR problems when they're trying to do things that the public doesn't like you know, that kind of thing um, and she gets recruited by a, a, an American politician Senator Stephen Slaymaker he's called um, <laughs> quick pause here the, the, just like the green screen the Dark Eden, the surname Slaymaker was one of the, the um, seeds of this novel. I had a colleague at work at UEA, I, I was working at the time, who uh, was called Eve Slaymaker. I thought, wow, that is a cool surname, Slaymaker. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to have that name. I, I did say, Do you mind if I write a book with your name in it? She was very pleased, so that's fine. Um, um, uh, Senator Slaymaker, charismatic, fairly right wing politician. Um, recruits our our protagonist holly to help him with a campaign which is about wanting to resettle people from the south and the north because he says if you can't if you don't help if you don't find a way of making that making making that possible and persuading everyone that that's in the interest of the country the country will fall apart so that's his his immediate project is and then he turns out to um then Holly, once she's Holly's working for him, they get on very well. It's not a it's not a sort of sexual thing as such, but they, they have, a, they have a, there's a kind of strong chemistry between the two of them. I mean, he's a generation older, now, but um, once she's working for him, he says, "By the way, I'm going to run for president next time," so, she, so that then he um, she she then is involved helping him become president of America, which he does. Difficult for her because he's. I've decided not to call it the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. They have two parties in America. One's called the Unity Party, one's called the Freedom Party. He's a Freedom Party politician. Um, she and all her friends always vote with the other party, Unity Party. So she's having to step out of side of her own tribe, if you like, which all her friends find very difficult and are always telling her, you know, asking her how can you possibly do that? She helps him become president and she helps him become president she has to do a different difficult thing most of his support is in the north of the country and he has to persuade voters in the north who don't like all these people coming from the south that they want to vote for this guy that's going to bring a lot of people in from the south so she has to find a way of persuading them that's going to happen and I, I'm not going to tell you that, that exactly what happens but she finds a way but it involves a kind of Faustian bargain which, which, um, which comes back to haunt her and has unexpected consequences which she didn't anticipate towards the end of the book um, she has to do a kind of. I mean, basically, the the premise of the book is that. In fact, I start the book with a um, what do you call it? Is it called an epigraph? We put it at the beginning of the book an epigraph, yeah, from Beowulf, where the uh, very near at the beginning of Beowulf, the, the um, king Skilled, is I don't know how you pronounce it, King Shield is um, Beowulf's father, is described as a, a powerful king who came from nothing, but now. But he's a, he's he he's, he overthrows the mead benches of all the other all the other kingdoms in the, in the neighborhood, and they all have to pay him tribute. And it says that, and the concluding line of this that verse is, "And he was a good king." That was a good king. And I was thinking, the premise of it is that a good king is someone that takes things from somewhere and gives it to their followers. <laughs> yeah, you. And I, I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that's still true. You know, we we, are, we Mrs. Thatcher privatised state-controlled industries and made it possible for people who voted for it to buy the shares and knock down prices, for example. You know, there's, there's endless examples you could think of. And it struck me that even global warming is an example of that, but that there's a slight twist with global warming. Basically, we're living a comfortable life at the expense of people in the future. So we're basically stealing from the future. And it's like, the more I thought about it, the more that always happens. The, at the end of the day, our leaders offer us things that really belong to other people, and that's how they get our support. And that's what happens in this novel, um, and uh, that's what Holly has to help him do, yeah. and uh, that's that's the premise of the story. Mm-hmm. As it sounds. Great. um Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's a kind of meditation on the compromises that are involved in politics. One of the challenges of it, of course, is that. We now have a president of America who is stranger than fiction. And when I started writing it, I wasn't obvious he was going to be president. Uh, so that I had I had a huge crisis of confidence when Trump was elected. They don't they never think of the fiction writers, do they? You know? <laughs> you know, they never think, This is gonna really mess up someone's science fiction novel, you know. They just they just don't care. They just vote for him anyway, you know. <laughs> that was pretty cross with the American public. Um uh, so my guy isn't really like a Trump-like figure. I mean, he's he's a right-wing politician. He's but he's he's um, he's not. I mean, Trump is so unlikable. This guy is not unlikable. Um, I don't find him unlikable. He, some people might, um, but he's he's like King Skild, or if you call him, he's he's, 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 the, he's a leader of the old school. He looks after his own. Um, and uh, so I had to do, I had to think how am I going to write work this novel so it'll work in a post-Trump world and i don't know if it succeeds or not in that way we just have to see but um i certainly i had a lot of stuff in it there's a lot of stuff in it about um the manipulation of news and use of the social media to um generate a, a kind of consensus that perhaps doesn't exist but you you, you create the, the impression of a consensus using social media people nowadays a lot talk now about trolls and bots that they don't call them that in the novel but they're things like that in the novel um and uh, Holly, our protagonist, who, you know, I'm I'm trying to portray as a character that people can uh, I don't say identify with in the sense of she's a role model. She isn't, but people can think I can see where she's coming from, and I can relate to her. And I don't find her an evil or obnoxious person. She is having to play that game. She's 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 recruiting large armies of what we would now call bots to to achieve what she wants to achieve. You know, for example. But she basically makes uh, President Slaymaker's election possible by coming up with one wheeze that actually wins it for him. You know, So she is the one that swings it. Um, I would say no more than that.
1: <laughs> so the science fiction elements of the book are sort of on the face of it a lot closer to home, I guess, than in something like Dark Eden, where you have an entire fictional planet mm. where everything can take place. Is it almost a book that... People wouldn't necessarily consider it to be science fiction; just a, a future projection of well, society. I, I
2: think. I think if I hadn't been a science fiction writer and I'd written this book, no one would think it was science fiction. Do you know what I mean? Because because it's like the kind of book that mainstream authors might write, and people would say, "Okay, it's just set in the future." There isn't a lot of fancy technology. I mean, I've invented a few things just to make it. You know, there's driverless cars and things like that. But um, and there's a kind of rather sophisticated. I mean, I I'm implied it's rather more sophisticated kind of social media thing. I call the call the whisper stream, which is the kind of um, kind of um, kind of unified social media thing they've got. But uh, no, it, If you were, if you, if you, if I, if if I wasn't already a science fiction writer, people might might not want to choose to categorise it as science fiction. But it's said a hundred years in the future, and it's about an imagined future society, and. Um, you know, I mean, I, according to my definition, it's science fiction, but, but you, you, it's not doesn't feel heavily science fiction, or doesn't feel heavily science fiction, and I, and I wrote it that way on purpose, you know. Um, yeah.
1: Does it bring a, a sort of separate marketing challenge when you're, you're mar- marketing a book that isn't necessarily science fiction, but has science fiction elements, and you as an established science fiction writer, it's going to be seen as science fiction, whereas I say other writers could and have produced books which have science fiction elements in them and which are yeah. on face Facebook science fiction. And yet, as non-science fiction writers, they're rarely considered to be science fiction novels.
2: Well, it's a funny thing that, I mean, I... Yeah, for example, Kansuo Ishiguro, um, I would say Never Let Me Go, is probably slightly more science fictional than my book that I'm talking about in the sense that it involves cloning, which is quite definitely a science fictional concept. Uh, but it's not sold as science fiction is it you know because Kazuo Ishiguro is not known as a science fiction writer yeah Um. so um, so it, it, it goes to show that genre is in the eye of the beholder in many ways you know, uh, you know I suppose if you have a, a book that's got you know galactic empires and spaceships and so on I suppose you have to say that is science fiction you know not, no one's going to claim that that's just, <laughs> just just because it's written by a you know but uh, you know, you know there's, there's, there's quite a large grey area which it what you see depends on what your preconceptions are it's like those psychological tests where you know people see a different color depending on what they expect to see you know um so but for you, you sorry i keep rambling off but uh, your question was about the difficulty of marketing it wasn't it yeah well i don't know i mean i'd quite like to have an audience that straddles the, the um, science fiction readers and non-science fiction readers i, I find it irritating that i mean it's not an uncommon occurrence for me to someone to, you know i get talking to someone they say what do you do and i say i'm a writer And they go, most people find that interesting as you know and, uh, and they say what do you write I say science fiction and there's kind of you can see like oh god it's happening again okay. <laughs> my face sinks you know they oh god i don't want to talk to him anymore you know um uh i find that a bit depressing really because i mean i just write books far as i'm concerned you know mm-hmm. i'm not really sort of trying to write i'm not sitting down i'm gonna write a science fiction but i'm just writing a book it just happens to come out that way you know just happens to I find that a good way of telling a story, you know. So I, I'd be quite glad if it, it attracted a new readership, but I I think your part is it well, it's difficult to attract a new readership when people have a preconception about well, what kind of book you write. Um um it is frustrating though when I the um you know going back to the Turing the um Turing test and the Edge Hill Prize, the the, old, the judges, chair of the judges at the time uh, wrote um uh, this book winning the prize is going to be a surprise in the literary world he said and he said to be honest it was a surprise for the judges because we didn't know we liked science fiction um and uh i i've had that kind of reaction quite often you yeah. people have been people have read Tolkien and thought oh, actually i quite like it you know i don't like science fiction but i quite like it and you think yeah well you might find there are a few science fiction novels you'd like you know i'm sure there's lots of science fiction novels that people would read and it would confirm their reasons for not liking it and you know there's no good pretending it. that's not the case but you know, i just wish people would think you know just because it's got a certain label, it might have, it might, you know, you might like it anyway. Um, yeah, so that's a challenge, isn't it? But uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, depends you know, it's outside of my hands now, isn't it? Really, it's, um, you know, it's that's the that's the nice thing. There. It's in the lap of the gods, and some it depends what who picks it up, who recommends it to who, which kind of audience it appeals to. I'm sure if I look on. Amazon at my books, which I'm sure you know, I all writers do sometimes see what how they're doing. I know you look at, it, you can tell who reads my books by the the, the other, you know, other people who, usually most people who read my books are science fiction fans, I think, and uh, I'm sure that continue to be the case.
1: So, America City is out on second of November. What's next after that? What are you doing? There? Well, the
2: next thing is coming, following quite closely afterwards. I, th- I can't remember the exact day, but I believe it's in early january my my next short story collection comes out which is called spring tide and spring tide is quite different from our other two collections in two respects first of all the stories haven't none of them have appeared in print before so it's an original collection and quite a lot of them were written especially for the collection some of them in kind of half you know sort of ideas that i had a while ago and i'm quite a fan of way of bringing them out and, but um but uh, most of them are written especially for the collection. So it's, you know, I sat down and wrote a collection of short stories, which is kind of you know something I've not done before. The same thing is they're not they're not really science fiction. I mean, some of them are a bit weird, you know. They're not completely they're not completely sort of realistic, realist fiction either. But none of them are, in my book, are science fiction. And some of them aren't even some of them are just realist fiction, you know. So that this isn't a completely new departure for me, something I've never done before. Um, it's a collection of, I think, 21 stories. So most of them are quite short. Um, so, yeah, they're completely different from anything you, people have seen of mine before. And interestingly, your earlier question about genre, so, suddenly ran, so I suddenly accidentally wandered right out of my my my, <laughs> um, my kind of allocated uh, <laughs> patch. But to my, my great pleasure and surprise, actually, because I was thinking... It's just a little little project of my own. I was thinking I'd find it, try and find a small press, someone to publish it. And my my Corbis, who publishes my novels, so I said, "Well, why do you send it to us? Where are your publishers. Send it to us." Well, you know, we like it. We'll publish it. And that's what they're doing. So yeah, great. So it's you know being really professionally published and everything, probably edited and all the rest of it. So that was a that was a nice little um, bonus. I'm, I'm not expecting it to sell, you know short story collections that don't sell like novels, but you know it's. Um, it's uh, something I'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes down. and I'm very proud of the stories, really. And, uh, but uh, yeah.
1: Have you got any more kind of novel ideas on the horizon? Have you started working on anything yet? I'm working on
2: another novel, yeah. I'm working on another novel now. I've, um, it's been a bit, the genesis of it has been a little bit like Daughter of Eden. I've, I've had my several months of like, oh God, where's I going with this? I seem to have finally shaken that off and I've now got the bit between my teeth and it's. It's coming. I, I mean, I, what, what seems what seemed to happen in both cases what I had maybe a quarter or a third of the novel of what I envisaged, envisaged the, the full length of the novel written, and thinking, I don't like it. I don't like it like this. And then eventually, I sat down and thought, I'll tell it a slightly different way. Start from the beginning, telling it a different way, and that's what's happened. And now I'm I'm liking it. I'm enjoying it, and it's it's, it's alive for me. And uh, so, yeah, and my working title is The Duendo Killings, which doesn't give away very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so particularly if one of the words is one i made up. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's uh, it, it's inspired to some extent by um, a, a few short stories uh, that I have published. Um, one of them was called Day 29, which appeared in The Peacock Cloak, and another one also in The Peacock Cloak, which is called... Um, the Caramel Forest. That was based. It, it is it has. Those were the original um, seed for the idea of this novel. So it, it has got some origins out there. People. Some people already, will already have read. Hmm.
1: So, is there any advice you would want to give to people who are maybe thinking about writing a short story or a novel for the first time, and who, who've got an idea but have never given it a go before?
2: Um. Are we talking about advice about the writing of it or advice about publishing, or both?
1: Oh, uh, both. both. But any okay. rest at all. Okay, all right. Even if it's don't do it. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, um, I think uh, one, one piece of advice is don't expect it to be easy to write a novel. And don't treat getting it done as quickly as possible or getting it published as your main objective. Because I think uh, sometimes people i very focused on I want to get this done and I want to get it published. Where where and, and they and basically they they write something which just isn't good enough because they haven't spent the time on it and they haven't they haven't recognized that writing is about it's not just about generating words on paper it's about solving problems and it's about noticing what the problems are and solving them and being willing to go right back to the beginning if need be. As I say the present novel I'm working on the previous one I've I've got like thirty thousand words in and then thought, I'm not writing this right, I've got to start again. You know, that's that you've got to you've got to be willing to do that because as you know yourself it's like um all kinds of things like viewpoint, what viewpoint you tell it from, what tone you tell it in, you tell it in the first person or third person, you know, all these kind of things will be crucial to whether or not it comes alive or not. And you won't necessarily be able to tell from the outset whether you've got it right in that respect Um, and it may well be something as fundamental as that that needs to change or you may need to start in a completely different place from where you started before or something that you thought of as a minor part of the story may turn out to be actually the most interesting part of the story and something you thought of as this is going to be the really cool set piece turns out to be something you're going to have to jettison completely and I think if people don't give yourself time and recognise that you've got to make hard decisions then you don't get a good book, you get a a rubbishy book I think that's the thing that that's the advice I give to writers you know you, you don't 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 be too focused on the on the end result and don't be running over yourself to get to that end result um in terms I mean in terms of I mean yeah obviously the end result in terms of a good book but not just a book <laughs> mm. who cares about a book it's no point in it I mean it's a good book that would be my advice about uh writing a novel um Having said that, you know, I mean, I'm only me, and but people have different approaches. Some people, for example, I don't plot out the um, the entire plot beforehand. I can't do that um, because my whole technique is trial and error, you know, very much trial and error, and blundering around till I eventually I find my way. Whereas, you know, for example, like we know J.K. Rowling plotted all seven of her Harry Potter books out from the beginning before she even wrote them, and that definitely not would not work for me. But I mean, obviously, it worked pretty didn't do too badly <laughs> um and uh so people are different so it's, it's difficult to give advice um and she you know if you spoke to jk rowling she might say oh absolutely essential I have a plan first you know she might say that um i can't think of plots beforehand so that, that wouldn't work for me I, I i just can't think of detailed plots i can think of somewhere where I, roughly the story is going to end up that's about the best mm-hmm. thing i can do to a plot uh so I've just given some advice and then I've just taken it back. So that's not very... Uh, but I suppose probably myself and J.K. Rowling would, would all agree that don't underestimate the amount of work that needs to be done. And if you don't fancy doing that work, don't do it. You know That would be my advice. It's the same as, you know, I used the example of learning a piano earlier. You don't expect to be able to just play the piano without a lot of work. And it's, just, it's no different from that. You know, you, you have to practice your scales. You have to learn the boring pieces before you do the good pieces, you know. So I think that would be my advice. It's not. It's not. It really isn't easy writing. Um, uh, it isn't easy at all. Uh, published? Getting published? I don't. Uh, people sometimes want to know about that as well. I mean, I, 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 again, I, I do think, as I said earlier on, I think we are very lucky in in the, the the um within the world of science fiction, um, in that um there are still small presses and there are still magazines that publish short stories. There are people who just. Who, who set, like Andrew Hook or Ian Waits, um, or indeed the people in America set up Wildside, um, who just set up a small press because they they love to the genre. I can't believe they make very much money out of it, but they do it because they want to do it. And there we have a kind of ladder that allows us to get a little bit of a CV as a writer, get ourselves known a little bit, uh, bef- before having to make the big step towards persuading someone that you're a commercially viable writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you and I, bet we both know Una McCormack, for example. She 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 made her name as a as a writer of fan fiction online, completely without money, and that's how she made the step into being a writer. We are, we are lucky, I think, in our genre. I don't suppose that happens so much in mainstream fiction. Um, so uh, that's that's one thing. Is in terms of advice for getting yourself published, is to is to. Get yourself out there. Get yourself use those medium, use those media, is that whatever the word is, mediums, to get your stories out, um, uh, and and really work at that. But the other advice I always give people is network. Um, get to know people. I think most of us, at writers, are you know, we tend to be on the introverted side, I suppose. Writers, are generally quite often. Uh, so perhaps we may think oh, the whole point of writing is to be able to sit around in my room and not have to talk to anybody I <laughs> guess, what's the point if I've got to go out and meet people and talk stuff and all that stuff that I'm trying to get away from but I think you do have to go and meet people I, you know, we've mentioned Andrew Hook who published my short story collection I know him because he was introduced to me by a mutual friend who I met by going to science fiction conventions and meeting other writers my agent so I'm at the same way so it's that kind of networking thing it's just unfortunately bounty social writers you've still that's still important and I think networking uh, is fairly key to um, getting on and, and and again it's work you know particularly if you're not a particularly uh, gregarious person it's work but you do have to do it
1: so although this upcoming short story collection spring tide isn't itself science fiction everything else that you've done has been sci-fi to some extent whether it's kind of near future Earth like America City or invented planets like Dark Eden, why do you think science fiction as a genre lends itself towards so much exploration of humanity I guess
2: well um, I, uh, I I'm i struck by the idea that a lot of people who like fiction don't like science fiction um, and I find that odd in a way because the all all fiction, all serious fiction, starts from the premise that you can find you can explore things by making things up, which you can't explore by literally re- representing the truth. All fiction has that premise. So that uh, if you like um, a conventional literary novel that describes, I don't know, the relationships of people, in, you know, in, in what purports to be this world. Okay, the world isn't made up. It's a it's a kind of more or less attempts to replicate the world we live in, but the the individuals and the relationships are made up. Um, and they are, and of course, you know, the fiction itself starts with the point of view that we can see into the heads of other people, which in fact we can't. So uh, basically, fiction is let's just pretend that we can see inside other people's heads and think about why how they think. That's all fiction is based on that. All, all sort of realist fiction is based on that. So so what I'm trying to say is all fiction has the takes on board that idea that it's creative and in a way reveals certain truths or allows you to glimpse certain truths that otherwise you wouldn't glimpse by making stuff up. That's fiction itself. Science fiction does one more thing. It doesn't just make up people. It doesn't just make up situations and relationships. It also makes up some aspect of the world itself. That's the thing that's different about science fiction. And it could be quite a small thing. Some science fiction just involves the invention of some new technology or, I don't know, um, a device that allows people to read other people's minds or something. Or um, or it could be you set it on a whole different planet or you can set it in a society that works differently from our own. It just takes it to another level. It just twists that process of fictional making to another level. And that generates that is very very rich in possibilities particularly if you're interested in ideas well not, I mean, there are all kinds of things it's rich for actually in in the case of the Eden novels I wanted to imagine how uh, a world a, a society evolving from scratch so I could think about how societies do evolve and how they um, how societies explain to themselves why they are as they are and how they provide some sense of meaning to the members of that society so I invented a uh, society from scratch and and ran with it and involved that it seems to me just incredibly productive to be able to do that and um, it's a kind of it's a kind of thought experiment um, I think that's what in you, you know, scientific terms you'd call it a thought experiment where you just think let's suppose we did this we don't actually do it but let's suppose we did it what would the consequences be and, and that's what science fiction isn't uh, but all fiction. Now, my point is all fiction is a thought experiment. It's just a, it's a it's a thought experiment with x ex, with an extra dimension added, um, and uh, you can use it if you think of um, Eden is a kind of in part a, uh, a sociological thought experiment or a, or a political thought, socio political thought. It's about how societies evolve, but it's also about the individuals in the foreground and how they relate to the society they're in. You know, so it's, it does the thing that. The mainstream fiction thing in the foreground, but in the background, there's another thing going on as well. You know, um, uh, but you could also, you, you know, of course, we know that science fiction can be used for technological thought experiments. What would happen if we could, you know, I don't know. I mean, I suppose Million um, you know, and One Science Fiction stories about what would happen if we had faster than light travel. You know, um, would indeed things would indeed be different if that impossible thing were true. Um, uh, and it's just it just is incredibly rich at generating. Uh, those possibilities. That's one thing about it. The other thing I think is there's lots of things that are good about it. Actually, I could go on about it at length. But um, the other thing about it that uh, I think is useful, and this is a more, um, if you like, I think a word is a more primitive aspect of science fiction. Something that's got a very long pedigree, which is that in a science fiction story, um, you can externalize things that otherwise would be internalized. In other words, you can have you. If you like, you can have a person whose demons are out there, rather than just in their heads. Uh, that makes them, which has all kinds of dramatic possibilities, or their demons, or their or their angels, for that matter. But they take them out of their heads, and they're dealing with them in the world, and that that creates for all kinds of lively dramatic possibilities. And of course, that, not so much the thought experiment aspect, but that aspect, that externalising, is, is as old as stories itself. I mean, you know, if you look at the oldest stories, uh, the, I, mean, I, I guess the the really old stories that that go about thousands of years if they were published now they would be called fantasy they involve supernatural beings and magic and that kind of thing and they're all about things that perhaps maybe the, the storyteller themselves was unconscious about what they were doing wasn't conscious wasn't aware at a conscious level of what they're doing they're taking things out from inside of themselves and putting them out in the world, so the characters can interact with their own demons, yeah, that or their own. Um, and of course, science fiction does that. Science fiction is really, in, in my view, a modern subgenre of fantasy. Um, it's a it's a kind of fantasy for people who, who, who find magic and so on far fetched, <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, although uh, the other way I put it is, it's it's a kind of fantasy for a world in which magic actually exists. That's the other way to put it, because. If you'd uh, written a story 200 years ago where somebody could take a little device out of their pocket like this and uh, talk to their sister in Australia, which I can do, that would be magic. So it's, it's debatable how you want to describe it. But the I would say that the other thing I'd say is that um, what we call naturalist fiction, realist fiction, which now people tend to see as the mainstream, is itself a subgenre of fantasy. It's a special kind of fantasy which mimics real life. That's the difference with it. That's the only thing. It is still fantasy. But it it, uh, indulges the reader in the idea that they're looking at their own world, that they never are, really. They're always looking at the writer's imagination.
1: So thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. It's been great talking to you.
2: Thank you. I've very much enjoyed it. It's always nice to have a... Talking about yourself, It doesn't it can't hurt, (laughs) you know.
1: If people are looking for um, your books or your blog, or anything like that, where can they find all that?
2: Uh, well, I've got a website, so that, that's wwwchris com, or you can also find me on Twitter at chriszbeckett.
1: If someone was interested in going out and, and reading some of your work, is there a particular place that you'd recommend people begin, a novel or a short story collection?
2: Well, I think probably... I would um, suggest, that someone want to get an overview of kind of things that I write about, and you know what kind of writer I am, probably the best thing to do would be start with my first short story collection, *The Tearing Test*, because the stories were published over a long period of time. Um, and uh, I think that would give them a sense of where I was coming from as a writer. Um, there's stories in there; you can see the seeds of some of my later novels in there as well. Um, but if you wanted to start with a novel the novel I personally have a bit of a soft spot for is my, my most recent novel, Daughter of Eden but I wouldn't recommend you start with that because it's the third novel, Eden novel and although it would, you could read it on its own it would make sense I think part of the fun of Daughter of Eden and Mother of Eden is the fact that the backstory to them these are, these are, these are people who keep telling themselves stories about their background, their, their, their history they, they they keep retelling and retelling their history, obviously changing it as they go along and, and making it fit with their current conceptions. And I think if you hadn't read Dark Eden before you read the other two, you'd miss a lot of the what was you know what was there to be seen. you know so I'd recommend if you start with a novel, I would probably start with Dark Eden. But I'm actually quite proud of the two novels I wrote before, Dark Eden as well, so I'd hate to people people to ignore those. Um, uh, the Holy Machine and Marcher. And, of course, I must plug my my new book as well, America City, which is just about to come out.
1: And are all three Dark Eden books now as audiobooks as well?
2: Uh, yes, they are. They're all three Dark Eden books are available as audiobooks. Um, and in the case of the first two, uh, Dark Eden and Mother Eden, there are actually an, a British and an American audiobook being recorded. I'm a special mention for the, the American audiobook of Dark Eden, where they went to immense trouble. I think they've got 13 actors. To, all the, the, the book has got a lot of different narrators, and each narrator is given the different actor. And they actually went to immense trouble to develop an actual Eden accent. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, 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 they really thought through, how, how what these people sound like? One of their ancestors is the, the, the astronauts who originally landed on Eden. One is American, one is English. Uh, they've been in isolation from the rest of the human race for 160 years. How would they talk? They, and, they, and they've actually tried to come up with an accent, which I thought, you know, wow, that's all credit to them. And I felt very really sort of touched they went, went to that trouble. <laughs> but the British version is great as well. They didn't They didn't do that, but it doesn't matter. And uh, The British version of Daughter of Eden is a really beautiful audio job, which is read by Imogen Church. I think she's done a, a really wonderful job. She has come up with a kind of Eden accent too, kind of rustic sounding accent. I think that's quite appropriate in a way for people from Eden Uh, But I must say, when I listened to the the sample of it, um, uh, it was really quite a moving experience for me. Really, you know, like hearing one of my own characters speak, it's a very special experience, and I do recommend that very much.
1: So we're really looking forward to reading America City, which is out on the 2nd of November. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you again for joining us.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: So we'd like to thank Chris Beckett for joining us for our episode of Time for Cakes and Ale. It was fantastic to talk to him. Uh, We really recommend that you read some of his back catalogue and certainly you should go out and get a copy of America City when it's out, uh, well, tomorrow by the time this episode goes out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, if you've got any feedback or comments about this or any other episode, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or on our Facebook page, Time for Cakes and Ale. on the website timeforcakesnail.com
0: yeah so please do get in touch let us know what you're thinking and if you're feeling generous please drop by itunes and give us a review but for now that's it for episode 20 next time episode 21
1: (laughs) (laughs) goodbye goodbye